All right, good morning, everyone. I am a little loud. It's better. Um, yeah, good morning. Uh, I am not Caleb Lawson. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but I have the privilege of teaching his uh, equipping hour class this morning. And uh, we've just been looking at the promise of the Messiah all throughout the Old Testament. Um, and today, Caleb gave me all of wisdom literature for one morning. And so, um, we'll uh, be running through it. Um, so yeah, so buckle up. We, uh, we will not be stopping for food or restroom breaks. You should have went at home. You should have brought a snack. Um, if anyone falls off along the way, see you on the other side. <laughs> so uh, let me pray, and then we'll start looking at the Messianic prophecies and wisdom literature. Lord, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the opportunity to come together and worship you. And um, just look to your word and how um, you were promised in the Old Testament, Lord. Lord, it's awesome that you have given us your word. You have condescended to communicate to us. And not only that, you sent a Messiah to save us. Lord, we are thankful for that. I pray that this time um, in equipping hour would be profitable. And we would just see you in these texts, Lord. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So first off. What is wisdom literature? Wisdom literature was a category of literature in many cultures in the time of the Old Testament. It deals with the way the world works. It can deal with big philosophical problems and smaller things that may be addressed with common sense. Modern philosophical writings might be considered to be in the same vein as ancient wisdom literature. Modern, modern philosophers write about such lofty issues as the problem of evil, um, while others address more mundane matters, more practical things. Um, a modern example is Ben Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac, where he says, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's cool. That's good. It's pretty true. Um, but it's not lofty. And, uh, but it is philosophy uh, of some sort. The wisdom literature of ancient Israel, though, was unique in that God was recognized as the fountainhead of all wisdom. And we see that in Proverbs, the beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Uh, Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So through common grace, people can gain certain amounts of wisdom about how to live in this world. There are unbelievers who know how to manage their money. Um, they can respond relatively well to difficult situations uh, or even respond to tragedy with strength and dignity. It's common grace. But it is the Lord who created the world, and only he can give true insight into the way that the world works. His wisdom is seen in light of eternity. He created this world. He's sovereign over this world, so his wisdom is obviously going to be better. And so in the Old Testament, there are five books that are classified as wisdom literature. Without looking, do, do you guys know what they are? Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Job, and the one in between all those. Psalms, the biggest one. Um, so we're going to start with Psalms, 
um, because there's so much here, we could have a whole class just on the prophecies and Psalms. Um, and we're all familiar with Psalms. If you were to drop your Bible, it would probably open up to Psalms. It's so big and it's right in the middle. Um, Psalms is a collection of inspired songs used in worship of God. Um, and many of them foretell the coming of the Messiah and predict events that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. Um, in the Psalms, one of out of every six Psalms includes at least one Messianic prophecy. One out of every six. See how this could be a whole class? But um, these, these Psalms, they're quoted all over the New Testament, um, especially in the Gospels and the book of Acts. Some Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, they're pretty straightforward. You would know it when you see it. But others can be more indirect. So really quick, we're going to go over some pointers on how to identify those. And first is to just study the word. And this should go without saying, but in understanding the Bible, there's no substitute for actually studying the Bible, reading the Bible, and prayerfully seeking wisdom from the Lord. James 1.5, if you ask, he will give it to you, wisdom. Some messianic prophecies in the Old Testament are clearly identified as such, by the prophets who wrote them. The word Messiah means anointed one or chosen one. And those titles are found in several prophecies. Psalm 2.2 refers to the Lord's anointed. So we'll go to Psalm 2 right now, if you have your Bibles. Psalm chapter 2, and we'll read that. Come on in, grab some notes. Psalm chapter 2. It says, the reign of the Lord's anointed. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Does that sound familiar? Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so, we see the Lord's anointed here, but context is king. So just because you see anointed someone... In Scripture, that doesn't mean it's referring to the Messiah. And so it's important that we interpret Scripture um, with the context. Not every mention of the Anointed One is a reference to the Messiah. King Cyrus of Persia is called God's Anointed One in Isaiah 45.1. And also, King Saul was God's Anointed. Both of them were chosen by God for special work, um, which is the underlying meaning of the word of being anointed. David's references to God's anointed one in Psalm 132 are an example of how the title can have 
a dual meaning. Watch out. Psalm 132, if you want to look that up, if you want to stay in Psalms. We'll look up one more Psalm after this, I believe. But Psalm 132. A song of ascents. I think it was like last year during the summer or something, we went through all the Psalm of Ascents. And this is one of them. Psalm 132, it says, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the Mighty One of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Mighty One of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephaphtara, we find it in the jars of Jar. Let us go into his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Lest your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne, if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies, that I shall teach them. Their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests will clothe. I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy there I will make a horn to, to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Here in verse 10, David prays, For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. And in verse, uh, here David makes reference to himself twice, calling himself servant, God's servant, and God's anointed one. David had literally been anointed by the prophet Samuel to be king in 1 Samuel 16. But the word David uses here is the Hebrew word for Messiah. And Psalm 132.10 can easily be applied to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. What makes this passage even more fascinating is that immediately following the mention of David as the anointed one, Psalm 132 starts talking about the Messiah. One of David's descendants will rule from the throne, uh, verse 11. David's dynasty will be an unending one, verse 12. Then a twist in verses 13 and 14, the Lord himself will rule from Zion forever. Verse 15 and 16, as king, the Lord will bring abundance, salvation, and joy. And then this king who comes from David will have divine strength and all his enemies will be defeated, we see at the end. Verse 17 contains another mention of, the Lord, of God's anointed one. And so, put all this together with the fact that the Messiah was commonly referred to as the son of David. And Psalm 132 is clearly a messianic prophecy. David, God's anointed one, was promised that an even greater anointed one would sit on the throne of Zion forever. And so we should um, study our Bibles to um, 
see Messianic prophecy. Number two, we should learn the various titles of Messiah. Some Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament use different names for the Messiah. For example, Isaiah 42 speaks of the Messiah as servant of the Lord. Um, the prophecy of Numbers 24:17 calls the Messiah the star of Judah. Um, in Isaiah 11:1, 1, the Messiah is called a branch that bears much fruit. Often the Messiah is presented in the Old Testament as a king who will rule in righteousness. And so we should learn the various titles of Messiah. Number three, very important, you should do this in all of your Bible study, compare Scripture with Scripture. Some Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament are identified by the New Testament writers. Matthew is especially helpful in linking Old Testament prophecies to their fulfillment in the life of Christ. Jesus' birth is the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. Jesus' flight to Egypt turns out to be the fulfillment of an indirect prophecy in Hosea 11. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it's linked to Zechariah 9.9. Jesus' death on the cross fulfilled many Old Testament prophecies, including Psalm 34.20 and Zechariah 12.10. At times, Jesus quoted a messianic prophecy and applied it to himself. In the, in the synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus read a messianic passage in Isaiah 6, 61, and said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Um, just before his arrest, Jesus quotes Zechariah 13, 7, stating that the prophecy is about to be fulfilled. He quotes Isaiah 53, 12. And when we studied the whole of Isaiah 53, we discover that much of that chapter corresponds directly to the passion of the Christ. When Jesus quotes an Old Testament passage and says that he is the fulfillment of it, we know for sure that that is a messianic prophecy. Sometimes Jesus' allusion to a passage clues us in that we're dealing with a messianic prophecy. For example, on the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Matthew 27. And it turns out that those are the exact words in Psalm 22. So if you want to turn to Psalm 22 really quick. It's been a little while now, but I, on a Sunday morning, I preached on Psalm 23 about um, the Lord being our good shepherd. And at the end of my sermon, I mentioned that without Psalm 22, he's not our shepherd. And so that's this psalm, Psalm 22. It says, to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. Verse 1, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Just pause for a moment. Just think about 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like the Messiah, Jesus Christ on the cross, those words. Jesus went to the cross for you, Christian. Think about that. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far, be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no, none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and my, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. When we look at this psalm, doesn't a lot of that sound familiar? We find many details of the crucifixion. The mocking that Jesus endured. Jesus being thirsty. The piercing of his hands and his feet. The casting of lots for his garment. Jesus' agonized cry serves as a signpost that points us back to the treasure trove of messianic prophecies in the Psalms. And then, um, number four, look for themes, 
similar circumstances and matching details. These last two are much quicker. Some Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament take the form of types. The Old Testament sacrifices are definite types of the Messiah who would shed his blood for our sin. The temple's lampstand, the altar of incense, and the table of showbread are also clear types of Christ's light, intercession, and provision. Um, Joseph's dreams of his family bowing down to him in Genesis 37 came true, even though Jesus' brothers hated him. Joseph's brothers hated him. The rejection and eventual exaltation of Joseph can be seen as foreshadowing the rejection of Christ and his exaltation to the right hand of God. In the same way, Boaz's actions in the book of Ruth can be viewed as an indirect prophecy of the work of Christ on our behalf. The whole of old, the Old Testament just points us forward. Now that can be, that, that sentence can be misunderstood and say like Jesus is in, in every single word of the Old Testament. That's not what I'm saying. But the whole story and everything points us forward to Jesus. Um, the life of Joshua, so full of faith and victory, can also be seen as a precursor to Christ. Especially when we consider that Joshua and Jesus are both forms of the same Hebrew name, Yeshua. Viewing the stories of Joseph, Boaz, Joshua, um, it requires a certain amount of inference, but it's not a misuse of Scripture to acknowledge parallels, um, that parallels exist. Jesus himself used elements of the story of Jonah as a prophecy for his resurrection. And then lastly, really quick, uh, Messianic prophecies deal with some respect of the Messiah's nature, ministry, or associations. For example, Genesis 3.15 predicts the serpent-crushing Savior. Um, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus told two of his disciples, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms in Luke 24. The whole Old Testament Law, prophets, writings contain messianic prophecies. Um, and so, as we come to the next part of your notes, um, it might be intimidating. We're not going to go over all those references. Don't worry. But I just wanted to give them to you. It's awesome just looking at this huge list of prophecies and their New Testament fulfillment. There's prophecies concerning the Messiah's birth here. The Messiah will come from the lineage of David. He will come for all people. Um, he'll be called God while still in the womb. Uh, there's prophecies concerning the Messiah's nature and name. The Messiah will be called King of the Jews. Um, he'll be called God. Uh, he will be eternal. He's the creator of all things. All these things are foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Um, there's prophecies concerning the Messiah's ministry, his life and ministry. Infants will give praise to the Messiah. Uh, John the Baptist, what did he do in his mother's womb? When the, he entered the room, he jumped, he, he jumped for joy in his mother's womb. The Messiah will do God's will. And then concern, there's prophecies concerning the Messiah's betrayal and death. And we looked at Psalm 22 there. But there's a lot. Um, then lastly, concerning the Messiah's resurrection and exaltation. 
So, the Messiah in Psalms, there's a lot, <clears throat> and we ran through it. So if you guys want to just, like, go on your own time and look at some of those prophecies, you can do that. Um, it won't hurt my feelings if I see the notes laying around. <laughs> it happens every week. <laughs> so those are for you. Um, do what you will. So now, back one a book to the Messiah in Job. And this is not Job. Uh, the book of Job was written by an, an, an unknown author and is possibly the oldest account or book in the Bible. It's a mixture of prose and poetry that both brings distress and comfort. It follows the real story of a real historical figure named Job. Some people debate if Job was real or not. But the prophet Ezekiel refers to Noah, Daniel, and Job as three historical individuals. And so, he's real. Um, and we see that there's, there's one prophecy here that the Messiah would be a living redeemer. And I'll just read the, the couple verses really quick. <clears throat> In Job 19, 25 to 27, it says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Here, Job, I'm sure most, if not all, are familiar with the story of Job. But here, Job, arising above his previous doubt and despair, he boldly declares that after death, he shall behold God as his vindicator and friend. And this thought is parallel with Psalm 16. Um, uh, you will not abandon my soul. Uh, just quickly, Psalm 16 Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. In this psalm, David has full confidence that he will not be abandoned to Sheol. In the next life, the ties which have bound him to God will continue from this life to the next. And both of these passages are typically prophetic of Christ's resurrection because that event fully realized the truth of their idea. Immortality, the real victory over death, became an accomplished fact on Easter morning. And so that's quickly the Messiah in Job. Now the Messiah in Proverbs, I have this quote from Thomas Schreiner. It says, it seems that no ordinary king is in view in Proverbs. The Proverbs in the book are mainly ascribed to King Solomon, David's son. No human king fulfills the ideal king described here for all kings to one extent or another practice injustice. If Proverbs is viewed from a canonical perspective, the ideal picture of the king points to a future king, a king who fulfills the promise of the covenant with David, the righteousness, wisdom, and godlike structure of the king point to Jesus of Nazareth. The righteousness and wisdom and godly rule described in Proverbs are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so, God not only gave 
the book of Proverbs to Israel to evaluate their Davidic kings, especially, but also for God's final Davidic king. But he also gave the Proverbs to Israel as an evaluative tool needed for assessing God's final Davidic king. Um, Final Davidic son. And we know the term son is all over the book of Proverbs. It's used 46 times, being framed in Proverbs 1.1 and then in Proverbs 30, verse 4. Of course, since the Davidic covenant firmly anticipates that one of David's sons would ultimately sit on David's throne, like we just saw, it is not surprising to see Israel's sages building the sonship truth into the book of Proverbs. The opening reference to son for this theological motif, motif, um, for the opening frame or bracket, is in the title of the book of Proverbs. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, Proverbs 1.1. So from the beginning, the final editors included this historical title in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs, like other books recorded after God's initial establishment of the Davidic covenant, is also grounded on the Davidic covenant. Closing reference to son for this motif, not counting the references to son in uh, chapter 30 and 30, verse 1 and 2, is at the end of the book of Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 30, verses 1 through 4. It says, The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor I have the knowledge of the Holy One, who has ascended to heaven and come down, who has gathered the wind in his fists, who has wrapped up the waters in a garment, who has established at the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Of all of Israel's kings and her so-called sons, not one ever lived up to the divine calling to live in the fear of God. Who do you know or who do you think ever followed the book of Proverbs perfectly? We're constantly like, oh man, I'm... I'm the folly. I'm the guy doing folly. And for them too. Therefore, God pointed Israel ever forward to his messianic king and son, the only one who would ever, who would always live in the fear of the Lord. <clears throat> and so there's, there's three listed here. And then I'll just end the Proverbs with this other quote from Shriner. It says, if Psalms emphasizes praising the Lord, Proverbs focuses on fearing him. These are two different perspectives on the same reality. Only those who fear the Lord will praise him, and those who will praise him will fear him. Proverb points to Jesus Christ, who is wiser than Solomon and rules the world with a wisdom greater than his. And so, talking about Um, Solomon, that brings us to the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, these two last wisdom books, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, they don't have straight-up prophecies, um, but they still point forward to the Messiah. As Jesus said, all the Old Testament concerns him. It's about him. And uh, the book of Proverbs was written by Solomon, this man who, from an earthly perspective, 
He achieved everything in life. He had everything. This book, it examines the highs and lows of the mortal life, of life, or as he calls it, life under the sun, and compares it to the promises of God. It looks backward to the, at the futility of pursuing material gains. It recognizes the cycles of life that God built into this world and settles in a peace about God's will and submitting to it. The book ends with the end of the matter, fear the Lord and keep his commandments. Every book of the Bible points to Jesus in some way, whether it contains prophecy, men whose lives pointed towards salvation, or even if it just fills in an important gap in history of the Jewish people, like the book of Esther, which doesn't mention God at all. The Lord Jesus Christ is a central figure of the scriptures. Um, And Ecclesiastes is no exception. The important allusion to the coming Messiah in this book is not in it pointing to his role as Savior, but as the final judge. One day in the future, the Father will hand over the Son full authority to judge every person on earth or whoever lived. Revelation 20, 12 and 15 says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And if anyone was na- anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the, book of, into the lake of fire. The book of Ecclesiastes refers to the judgment of the righteous and the unrighteous several times. And even ends with the warning that on that day, that one day, the reader will have to give full account for themselves. But those who followed the advice of the writer and obeyed the ways of God, and for those who put their faith in him, that day will give their life ultimate meaning. Everything here under the sun is, as Solomon says, vanity. Vanity, and it comes from that Hebrew word, chabel, which means like a breath or vapor. Everything on earth, everything under the sun is like a vapor. And and to be real, we live our lives trying to grasp those vapors that are vanity. The end of the matter, fear the Lord and keep his commandments. How do we do that? By trusting Jesus. And so lastly, last five minutes, the Messiah and the Song of Solomon. And again, there's no direct prophecy here. To understand the Song of Solomon messianically, it is necessary to listen to the words which derive from deep emotions recollected and written afterward while calmly considering those deep emotions. And perhaps the strongest impression one gets from reading the song as a unified poem in its uh, canonical context is of a shepherd king rejoicing with his bride in a garden. Song of Solomon is certainly ripe pun intended, with garden imagery, evoking scenes of Eden. Interestingly, we might, what might be the song's climactic expression of the restoration of the intimacy lost in Genesis 3 is expressed in language that echoes the onset of alienation. The end of the curse of the woman in Genesis 3.16 reads, Your desire 
will be for your husband, yet he will dominate you. This is reversed in Song of Solomon 7.10, which reads, I belong to my love and his desires for me. The song sings of the son of David who is king in ideal terms. In spite of the alienation that must be overcome, this king, seed of the woman, seed of Abraham, seed of Judah, seed of David, enjoys uninhibited, unashamed intimacy with his beloved in a garden that belongs to him. It would seem that the burden of proof would be on those who argue against this that the Old Testament canon sublime Song of Solomon is anything other than messianic. This messianic interpretation of the song not only explains the song's presence in the canon of Scripture and sheds light on how it exposits the Pentateuch's messianism, it also connects the Song of Solomon to the rest of Old Testament theology. And so, that is messianic prophecy and wisdom literature. <laughs> but before we end, I just wanted to go back really quick. It's hard for me to just end on like teaching and just be like done. Like I want to just preach. But uh, just going back to Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I just wanted to read this little section um, from Spurgeon. It says, uh, so obviously the, the verse that Jesus also says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Spurgeon says, by these words, we are to understand that our blessed Lord and Savior was at that moment forsaken by God in such a manner as he had never been before. He had battled with the enemy in the desert, but thrice he overcame him and cast him to the earth. He had striven with that foe all his life long, and even in the garden he had wrestled with him till his soul was exceeding sorrowful. It is not till now that he experiences a depth of sorrow which he has never felt before. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was necessary that he should suffer instead of sinners, just what sinners ought to have suffered. It would be difficult to conceive of punishment for sin apart from the frown of deity, from the frown of God. With crime, we always associate anger so that when Christ died, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. When our blessed Savior became our substitute, he became, for a time, the victim of his Father's righteous wrath. Seeing that our sins had been imputed to him in order that his righteousness might be imputed to us. It was necessary that he should feel the loss of his father's smile, for the condemned in hell must have tasted of that bitterness. And therefore the father closed the eye of his love, put the hand of justice before the smile of his face, and left his son to cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Second person of the Trinity in his incarnation came to live and die for us. Think about that this Christmas season. Now, it is said that Martin Luther once sat down to prepare a sermon on that same text, Psalm 22. Martin Luther sat down. He sat at his desk. 
chewing on the meaning of these words for quite some time. Every, every once in a while, someone would poke their head into his office to see if he was okay, because he was in there for hours. And he was in there for hours, and they'd peek, and he wouldn't budge. And then finally, they say that Luther threw up his hands in the air, and he exclaimed, God forsaken by God, who can understand it? Who can understand it? It's an incredible thought. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, there's so much messianic prophecies and things that point us to Jesus. And now we look back at Jesus and, man, so thankful, so thankful for Jesus and what he did at Christmas, came down as a baby. It's, it's unbelievable. Let's pray. Um, Lord, we just thank you again for this morning. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for the incarnation. Lord, thank you for condescending to us, humbling yourself to become a man, still truly God and truly man, to live and die for us, Lord. Lord, we are so thankful. We are thankful for the opportunity to worship you this morning. I pray that everyone here would just be filled with the joy of the Lord and remembering the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. And so that we will sing our hearts out this morning. Lord, we are so thankful for your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.